Uh, speaking to membership, our next members meeting is November 13th, and that will be uh, at the, I believe that's going to be at Paul's office complex. Yes. So that's on North Sullivan. We'll have the address for that uh, available for you if you don't know where that is. And uh, we're going to have some important things to talk about with those as we try to do every time. So I, I encourage your attendance there as much as possible. If you notice in your bulletin or handout or whatever we want to call it right now, our little trifold song sheet with announcements. Uh, we also have our confession catechism. This is a reading from the New City Catechism. Last week we looked at question two, which asked and answered the question of what God is. And this week is question number three. So I'll read the question, and if you'll find it, it's on the... It's not numbered, but it's on the song sheet. If you'll read along the answer with me. And I forgot my Bible for the scripture passage, so bear with me just a moment. So the question, how many persons are there in God? So read along with me. There are three persons in the one true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Main characteristic that we want to understand about God is our God is a triune God. The separation of persons is by no means a separation in their unity, they are distinct in their personhood, but united in one divine essence. This is uh, affirmed in many places in the New Testament, but a nice summary statement comes in Second Corinthians thirteen fourteen, which reads, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. There we see Paul giving a benediction of sorts from all three persons of the Trinity, and Paul is also one, along with the rest of the scriptures, that affirm the oneness of God, that there is one true God who is creator of heaven and earth. Let's pray now as we uh, approach our time for preaching. Lord God, we, as we heard earlier this morning, you are the creator, and your glory is unsearchable. Yet you have revealed yourself to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. And in Jesus, you not only sustain creation, but you sustain us and preserve us forever by your Spirit. We do confess, though, that we fail to draw near. We do isolate ourselves at time, and we waver in our faith. The, the reality of sin dwelling in us makes us have doubts about where we are with you but we know, Father, that you are faithful, that you are full of steadfast love, and you have bought us with the blood of your own Son. And by your Spirit, you've brought us into your kingdom because you have purchased us through the new covenant in the blood of your Son. All of this to make us your people. So, Father, we ask that you would increase our faith. We ask that you would increase our love for you and our love for one another. We also ask that you would preserve the unity and the peace that we have in this church, in this body, that you would help us to have a disposition of forgiveness towards one another and of grace. We pray for the lost that are in our own lives, those who are wandering in darkness, help us to be ambassadors of your light. We pray for those that are hurting or sick among us that you would be a comfort to them, that you would bring healing to their bodies and refreshment to their souls. And for other churches around us, Father, we pray that you would strengthen them, that they would be faithful to preach the gospel. And as we come to preaching now, Father, we ask that you would uh, embolden and strengthen Paul for the task of preaching this morning. And for our own hearts, that you would soften them, that we would come away changed and more enthralled with who you are, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. 
couple of you are awake, that's good. Good morning, good to see you this morning. It's a beautiful day outside, beautiful fall day. Fall is coming, excited for that. We are in Acts chapter 2 this morning. Acts chapter 2, we're finishing up Acts chapter 2 in verse 42 through 47. So if you would join me in standing, join me in standing for the reading of God's word in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. I will read if you will just follow along there in your scriptures. Encourage you once again to bring a copy of the scriptures. And I know most of, most of people do that on their electronic devices these days, and that's fine. I don't want to to guilt you if you're using your electronic device, but there's, there's something about having a hard copy of the scriptures and be able to turn the pages. I'm just saying. So Acts chapter 2, at least it's helpful for me to actually hear you turning to, to places in scripture. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. Follow along here as I read. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Fathers, we approach your word this morning. I want to ask for your enabling. Lord, without your enabling, we are unable. Uh, We are not able to see what we need to see to understand what we need to understand, to apply what we need to apply. Father, I pray that by your grace you would work in us through your word this morning what only you can accomplish. I pray for this body of believers, this church, that you would create in us a supernatural reality that the world and those who come and and see would be in awe of. Not something that the world can create, not something that we can make on our own, but something that only you can do. And we pray for that. We ask that in your name, for your glory. Amen. Five young men... In 1982, freshly graduated from high school, 18-year-old young men, five of them went on vacation together over the summer to celebrate their graduation, their friendship, their futures ahead of them, and they chose a lake in the state of California to go and stay at one of their family's cabins. And at that lake, in 1982, they decided to take a picture together. And you know what a picture is like with 18-year-old young men. A little silly, a little funny. They took a picture together to remember that year, their graduation and their friendship. Well, five years later, they decided to regather, commemorate their five-year anniversary of graduation and their friendship. And they got together at that same lake five years later And guess what they did? They recreated that picture. And they all sat in the same position, all holding the same things, all in the same postures. And they decided to to do that every five years. Well, this year, uh, 2022, is 40 years since 1982. 40 years. And this year, this last summer, they got together at that same California lake, the five of them, 
and recreated that picture. That's fascinating, isn't it? We love doing that. I, I, I will admit, I've, I'm guilty of sitting and scrolling through the pictures because I want to see the changes. I want to see what happens as these five young men, 18 years old, turn into 58-year-old men right in front of your eyes. The, the, the differences in their lives, in their faces, the wrinkles that carve themselves into the faces of these men and the stories behind each one of those men's lives. You just imagine why is that fascinating to us? Why is that fascinating, that recreation? Well, it's fascinating because it looks the same, but we know it's not the same. We know it's not the same as it was. They're not 18 years old anymore. They're 58 years old now. And it's interesting because they've changed. Things change. Things move on. We approach a text this morning that is a little bit like that photo. It is a picture, the snapshot of the church right after Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. It's a picture of the early church at a time before anything had happened in their lives, before anything had taken place that we know takes place throughout the New Testament era. It's a picture of a time that seems innocent, pure, exciting. I think sometimes when we approach this picture, we, we believe our goal is to recreate it somehow. That somehow what we need to do, if we're going to do church the right way, what we need to do is recreate first century Jerusalem Christianity. Now that, that's fascinating to consider. What would that look like? But a little bit like 58-year-old men sitting on a fence acting like they're 18, it doesn't, it doesn't look exactly the way it did. And I think sometimes we approach a text like this morning, and all of you, if you've been around at all, have seen people who think our job is to recreate Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, when in fact, and I want you to hear this, to recreate and to make Acts 2, 42 through 47 a reality is not possible. It's not possible. They are in first century Jerusalem. You are in 21st century America. We cannot recreate exactly what takes place in Acts 2.42. And in fact, if you try, it will look really, really bad in our culture and in our society. It's not going to look this way. So what is our goal as we approach this text. Is it to recreate Acts 2, 42 through 47? Is that our job? No, but there are principles. There are principles in this text that do transfer. We call these transcendent principles, transferable principles. There are realities here that were important to the Christians in Acts 2, 42 through 47 that should still be important to us today. We take these principles and then we apply them in our context, in our situation. 21st century America. And that, that is the point of Acts 2.42. This is a summary, a summary, one, the first of several summaries that uh, the writer of Acts is going to give us throughout the book of Acts. Summaries giving us pictures, snapshots of what the early church looked like. And... I said it's impossible to recreate Acts 2.42-47, through and it, it is impossible to recreate the exact scenario. But our hearts, our hearts, there, there's something that should happen in our hearts as we read Acts 2.42-47. through There's something in our hearts that should, that should be, be encouraged and be created. There's something in our hearts where we should look at this and long for this type of, of fellowship and this type of church. Acts 2:42 through 47 gives us a picture of the early church 
And here is, here is why I want you to, to hear and take away. The people of God, here in Acts 2, 42 through 47, the people of God, once converted, continue in two devotions. Two devotions. The people of God, once converted, continue in two devotions. Now, most of you have heard this text before, or a lot of you have, and you've probably heard that there are four things here that the believer ought to be devoted to. And, and that is technically correct. And yet, really, there are two devotions, and the second of those two devotions has some definition to it. Okay? So let's look at it there. The people of God, once converted, continue in two devotions. Re- remember what the context is. Peter has just preached this sermon to Jewish men, and they are listening and hearing the mighty works of God given in their own tongue, in their own language. And they said, how can this be that we are hearing the mighty works of God in our own language? And Peter tells them what they're witnessing. They are witnessing the pouring out of the Spirit which signals the coming of the kingdom of God. And he tells them of their guilt, their guilt of killing the king, crucifying the one who is their king, the one that God raised from the dead. And this message, this sermon has so much of an impact on them, they cry out, brothers, what shall we do? Just in case you were sleeping. Brothers, what shall we do? He says, repent. Turn from your rejection of the king and be baptized in his name. Give your allegiance to King Jesus. Repent and give your allegiance to King Jesus. That message is for them in that day and for us in this day. How can we be saved? Repent. Turn from your sin and give your allegiance to Jesus. Put your trust and faith in Jesus, his death and resurrection. It says that those who received his word, verse 41, those who received his word were what? Were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So the context of Acts 2.42 is this great harvest that has happened as a result of Peter's sermon. 3,000 souls came to faith in Christ and were baptized, were added to the number there of the early church. But they didn't just then go away talking about how awesome of an event that was. They didn't just go away saying, hey, remember that time we were in the temple there and Peter preached and we had that awesome, spontaneous baptism. Oh, that was pretty awesome, wasn't it? No. They continued, it says, They continued, verse 42, they devoted. That word devoted means they persistently continued. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. The people of God, once converted, continue, persistently continue in two devotions. Devotion number one, devotion number one, sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. Says it right there, verse 42. They devoted, they persisted in, they continued in the apostles' teaching. Well, what were the apostles teaching? What were the apostles teaching them? They were teaching what Jesus had taught them. The apostles were teaching what Jesus had taught them. This is what he gave them in Matthew 28, remember? Go ye therefore, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth, Jesus says, go ye therefore and baptize all nations. Go into all nations, baptizing them, making disciples of them, and teaching them to continue in whatever I've commanded you. The apostles are teaching what Jesus gave them to teach. The gospel, the truth of Jesus and who he is, the kingdom and its implications This idea of continuing in or persisting in, they continued, they devoted themselves to what the apostles were teaching and applying it to their lives. They they gave themselves to it, devoted themselves to it. 
This is, in fact, how they knew who a disciple was. How do we know who is a disciple? Well, we know because they receive the word regarding Christ. This is what we see. They hear the word and they received the word regarding Christ and are baptized, Matthew 28, and they continue in the word that they receive. You know, it's incredible how simple this is. What is the definition of a disciple? A disciple is someone who hears the word regarding Christ, believes it, turns from their sin, gives their allegiance to Jesus as king, and continues in his word. That is a disciple. That's how you know who a disciple is. They had been baptized and were continuing in his word. They were devoted to the word of the apostles. But you may say, well, we don't have that today. I mean, yeah, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching because the apostles were literally standing right in front of them. The apostles were teaching, and not just teaching, they were showing many signs and wonders. They were doing incredible things. It would have been easy to devote yourself to the apostles' teaching. They were standing right there and doing amazing signs and wonders. We don't have that today. Have you ever thought to yourself, man, it'd be great if we had an apostle or somebody that could come and, and speak so we, we could know what God wanted. We don't have that today. Well, what were the miracles meant to do? What were the miracles and signs and wonders meant to do? They were meant to validate and confirm the truth of what the apostles were teaching. Their signs and wonders acted much like Jesus' signs and wonders in his ministry where he would say something and then do something to prove that what he said is true. The apostles were like that. They were giving signs and wonders not just to be cool, not, not, not just to wow the people, not, not just to show that they were amazing, but they were doing signs and wonders to confirm and validate the message that they were proclaiming Man, I wish we had that today. We don't need that today. You know why? Because we have God's word. We have God's completed word. Say, I wish we had the apostles' teaching. What what do you think the New Testament is? What is the New Testament? Is it not the teaching of the apostles written down for us? We have the same word. We have the same teaching. We have the same instruction. God has given it to us in his word. And they were devoted to that teaching. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. The New Testament itself, which is the explanation of the Old Testament, finding its culmination in Jesus. This is what the New Testament is. And it is handed down through the generations. We talked about this when we went through the book of Titus just a bit. bit. Jesus gives his apostles what he wants them to teach. And then the apostles teach and confirm it with signs and wonders. And then they hand it down to their disciples. And they take it. And they teach it. And they are to hand it down. This is what 2 Timothy 2.2 says. Paul tells Timothy, he says, What you have heard from me, Timothy... In the presence of many witnesses, I want you to entrust to faithful men. I want you to hand it down to men of character, to men who are faithful. I want it to be preserved by those who are of high character, godly character. Titus 1.9, the qualifications of an elder. He says to Titus, an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. The trustworthy word as taught. This is not something he's making up on his own. It is what Jesus gave the apostles, which the apostles have handed down to those who come after. And an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught and be able to rebuke those who contradict it. Trinity Church here this morning, what are we gathered around? We are gathered around God's word sound doctrine that agrees with God's word 
which produces transformed lives, godly living throughout each area and category of our life, we are committed to the apostles' teaching, to sound doctrine. But you may say, everyone knows, Pastor Paul, that doctrine divides. Doctrine divides. Don't you see all the denominations there are in the world today? We don't want to divide. We want to unite. And this is the philosophy of many who believe that doctrine is divisive. And so if we want to get together, what we need to do is minimize or lessen doctrine. Let's minimize doctrine and just talk about Jesus. Gather around Jesus. The idea, the belief is, is that we're going to see people come to Jesus. We're going to see a movement, a mass movement of people coming to faith in Christ. We don't need to emphasize doctrine. Because that's not the way to get people in your church. No, 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 no. Minimize doctrine. Just talk about Jesus. But you know, we've said this before. As soon as you say we gather around Jesus, that, that is a doctrinal statement and it needs definition who is jesus who does jesus claim to be who does jesus say that he is who does god say that jesus is and why does god have that authority and why does it matter to our lives all of these are doctrinal questions and you have to answer them Doctrine divides is the common refrain. Well, don't tell that to the early church. The early church didn't believe that doctrine divided. In fact, the doctrine is what united them. The apostles' teaching is what united them. That that is how they knew who belonged to the faith. Those who belonged to the faith were those who were baptized in the name of Jesus and continued in His Word. You may say off of that, well, doctrine, doctrine is so hard to understand. Doctrine, sound doctrine is dry and irrelevant. All those theological terms, and I I will admit to you that doctrine or theology can become an exercise in boasting for some people. Let me tell you, let me demonstrate to you how much I know But I'm afraid that the church has become a group of feelers and not thinkers. The church is full of people who want to feel something. They want to have an experience in something. But in order to do that, they believe they have to reject thinking. Can I disabuse you of that? of that notion, of that, of that thought, of that idea. Feeling and experience isn't the opposite of thinking. In fact, look, look at it. Look at what's going on here. It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. L- look down at verse number 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Did doctrinal clarity and unity around true teaching about Jesus, doctrine, did that somehow stifle their experience? No. It fanned the flames. It fanned the flames of passion and of praise. See, this this shortcut that is offered in so many places today, this shortcut to experience, void of thinking, void of any kind of rigorous thought, that is short-lived. It doesn't last. The people of God, and this, this is why I sit on this just for a second, the people of God... We ought to be thinkers. We ought to be thinkers. In fact, we, we should be 
thinking people, and our thinking people should lead our emotions. We should not be people caught up and led by emotions, but people that are led by thinking. Men, let me talk to you for a moment. And, and I know all of you here, unless you're visiting with us today, and, and I'm not thinking of anybody in particular, most of you are great thinkers and readers, so I, I, I maybe feel like I'm you know, preaching to the choir here. But the men of God, we should be readers and thinkers. We should think long and hard about doctrine and about theology and about the Bible and how the Bible actually applies to our lives. Are you, are you given to the hard work of critical thinking? How can you grow in that? How can you ask other men to challenge you in that? How often it is that the women of the church lead the church in thinking and theology. I mean, I, I, my experience has been that the women's ministry or, or the women's group, they're the ones that are saying, we, we, we have all these things to think about, all these things to consider, all these things to read. And all the men want to do is talk about last night's Seattle Mariners game. Why would you want to talk about that? But isn't that the case so often? Where the men don't talk about anything of real substance. And the women, they, they are thirsty for doctrine and for thinking, for theology. Why, why is that? Like I said, I may just be preaching to the choir here this morning, but I, I think it's important for us even early on in our church's life to commit ourselves, men, to be leaders in this. And by the way, not to tell the women, hey, you should mess around with that. No, 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 no. We want women who are thinkers too. We want women who are good theologians as well. But we want to we help lead in that, men. We should. We want to be thinkers. And I think the result of that is going to be an experience, a passionate living experience of emotion and feeling that aligns with the truth. The people of God once converted here continue in two devotions. The first is sound doctrine, sound teaching, the apostles' teaching, which we have for us here in the New Testament. This is what we are to be devoted to. And then devotion number two. Devotion number two. They're devoted to sound doctrine here in the early church, and then they are devoted to each other. Devoted to each other. Here you see the word fellowship. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. That is the definite article, okay? Just, just, it, 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 listen, if you're like, I don't know what a definite article is, okay, we need to be thinking people. We need to know what a definite article is, okay? The, instead of a fellowship, they devoted themselves to the fellowship. It has a definition. He's talking about something specific. The fellowship. Now here is where a lot of times people just break it up into four separate categories. The apostle teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Four different things. And actually, what's ha happening here, I think, in the construction of the Greek is that the breaking of bread and the prayers is acting appositionally. It's defining what the fellowship is. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and they devoted themselves to the fellowship. What is the fellowship? Namely, the breaking of bread and the prayers. The breaking of bread. They devoted themselves to table fellowship. Now, now, a lot of commentators debate, is this talking about the Lord's Supper? Is this talking about the communion meal that we'll take even here in a few minutes? Is this talking about communion? Or is it talking about just meeting in people's homes around the table? I don't think you make a distinction here. I think it's talking about both and. 
It's talking about table fellowship. The Lord's table being that first table where we find our fellowship. Do you know that's what we're doing when we take the Lord's Supper together? I say it all the time. The Lord's Supper is not just an individual activity. It's an activity of the entire body of Christ. Joined around the same doctrine. Unified around the teaching of Scripture. Being responsible for each other in our profession of faith. This is why we require baptism. And a continuing in obedience to the word to take the Lord's table. The Lord's table is where our fellowship as a church, our communion, our community as a church is articulated. Where it's defined. Where it finds voice. And this fellowship, the fellowship of the Lord's table, look at what happens. The, the, the fellowship of the Lord's table then gives way to the fellowship around the kitchen table. The tables of our homes where we enjoy fellowship together. Fellowship around what? Fellowship around the truth, the doctrine of the gospel and its implications for our life. That is the definition of our fellowship. Now this is important for us to hear. This is the challenge, okay, for us. Our desire is not to build a community of people which the world can understand. One writer calls these gospel plus communities. Gospel plus communities. Here's what I mean by that. The gospel is true of us, and yet what really joins us is our age group. Or what really joins us is the fact that we all like the same hobby. Or what really joins us is the fact that we're all kind of in the same financial brackets. Or maybe what joins us is the, the, what we choose for the schooling of our children, Gospel plus communities. And this is what the world understands. See, the world joins around things that they have in common. The world joins around, forms communities out of things that we have in common. Listen, listen. If you are a young mother who has young children, the world understands getting together with other young mothers with young children. The world understands that. that. That's what is normal. That's not bad. In fact, that's really good. That's great. To get together with other young mothers, to, to uh, encourage one another, to ask each other questions, what's going on, to help each other, keep each other accountable in particular ways. That's great. And yet, that, that is not necessarily gospel community. I'm afraid that, that churches build gospel plus communities. Here, I know how to get a lot of people together. Let's, let's get all the people together around the same commonality. Young mothers, young dads, sportsmen, teenagers. And do you see what happens to the church when you do that? What happens to the church when you do that is now you have all these pockets of different people who are all the same, same age and stage and interests and all these different things. And, and you might even get a really big church and you get, everybody stands back and goes, look, look at what we've done. We built a really big church. But it's a bunch of divided pockets of people. It's gospel plus community. Again, there's nothing wrong with having friendships. There's nothing wrong with having close friendships with people of the same age and stage. There's nothing wrong with that. How often are small groups and discipling groups and growth groups become that, right? People of the same age and stage, they kind of group together and they really like being with each other and they're good friends and that, that kind of becomes their definition. A gospel plus community. That is not what Acts 2, 42-47 talks about. No, they had the fellowship, the breaking of bread around the truth of the gospel alone. What would that look like? If, if we didn't just sit around our tables with people that looked like us, or that we enjoyed necessarily being around because we have the same interests, what if we filled our tables with people 
that have nothing else in common except for Jesus. And that became our commonality. That, that became what we talked about. That became what we lived out of. Instead of just gathering with people that we look like. Instead of just gathering with people that we are comfortable around. Now this takes quite a bit of work. But I, I do want to emphasize the, the fellowship of the New Testament church was a fellowship that, that wasn't formed around just friendships. Now, friendship is a good thing. But it wasn't defined by just friendships and commonality. It was defined by the gospel. And that is something that the world can't understand. How do those of different races join together? How, how do people of different political backgrounds join together? I was, <laughs> I was asked again and was privileged to go spend last weekend or last Saturday with Paul Smith and his Palapalooza people. I think Jeff Pace even has a Palapalooza shirt on. I don't know where he's at, but he had a Palapalooza shirt on this morning. Did you know I went out there and half the guys, okay, that's maybe stretching it a bit. A lot of the guys had kilts on. They had kilts. And they were out there, they were, they were playing Scottish Highland games, throwing cabers end over end and hatchets at a piece of wood and stuff. Kids running around with pointy sticks and hatchets in the woods. It was great. But you know what, what struck me as I'm out there with all these people. You know what? I'm not like these people. All the people out there, guess what they had in common? They all enjoyed what they were doing, right? For the most part. They, most of them liked camping. They liked being outdoors, like camping. And it's easy to form those types of groups. But the gospel community is formed of people that don't have similar interests with one another except for Jesus. I love Paul Smith. I don't have anything in common with that guy. I mean, if you know us, people think we're best friends. Are we best friends, Paul? I mean, I don't know. Both of our names are Paul, you know. That's about it. We don't enjoy the same things. We don't listen to the same music. You know why I love Paul? Because we have Jesus in common. And I want to see him succeed in winning his friends and those in the world that he's surrounded by all the time. I want to see him succeed in winning them to Jesus. You know, I, I don't have everything in common with you. That's not why I like you. I'm not, I'm not trying to be your friend. and Hang out. Watch the Mariners. That would be a depressing friendship anyway. <laughs> right? We have the gospel in common. We have something better. And that is what defines our love. The Lord's table, working its way over into our kitchen tables. And you get the sense that these people really enjoyed being with one another. They were excited about what they were experiencing. Number two, you see that the fellowship is defined first by breaking a bread, the table fellowship, and then it's defined by the prayers, the Again, that definite article, the prayers. It's talking about a particular rhythm and routine the Jewish people had of going to the temple for the prayers or the prayer times. These were the times in the Jewish faith where they would gather in the temple and pray. Prayer was not the only thing that would happen. There would also be teaching. There would also be instruction as teachers and rabbis would come and teach as people went in to pray. It was a regular rhythm. It was not spontaneous. You know, sometimes with our worship, we think spontaneity is the way to go. I don't think that's the case. Or we think with prayer. Have you ever tried to pray on a regular basis uh, with spontaneity? How does that go for you? I'm going to get up in the morning, and I'm going I'm to get out of bed and just try to spontaneously say things to God that are meaningful, 
and, and get some kind of communion going with God early in the morning. But I'm not going to have any form, any rhythm to it. I'm not going to have any kind of plan with it. I'm just going to try to feel it. How does that go for you? Not too well. Here, the people had a regular set time where they gathered together. It's called the prayers. They would go into the temple. And, and look what it says. They went together. They went together. Day by day, attending the temple together. They had set times throughout the day where they met together and prayed and worshiped and listened to the teaching that they devoted themselves to. The people of God, once converted, continue in sound doctrine. They continue in love for each other, which manifests itself in table fellowship, which manifests itself in a committed, regular gathering together. Now, our gathering doesn't look like this gathering here in Acts 2.42. This is one of those really clear points where we can't replicate this. Is there a temple somewhere? I mean, can we go into the temple together? Do we have a regular set time where we gather together every single day? That, it can't happen. And yet, there's a principle here, right? Do you see it? We gather together, we set times where we come together and pray and hear God's Word and read God's Word and eat the table fellowship together. We have regular times that we do that. And guess what? These people were devoted to those times. They were devoted to the gathering together. And our gatherings should emphasize, I think, prayer. This is one of those things I, I, don't, I don't know that I've ever been a part of a church that's good at this. And I want to be good at this. I, I want to grow in this as a church. How can we grow together in, in making prayer together part of our regular gatherings, our regular rhythm of gatherings? How can we pray together in a meaningful way? When, when you hear it's time for prayer, like when we do at our membership meetings, don't, don't raise your hand. Just let me ask you. When, when, it, when it's time for that prayer time in our, in our membership gatherings that we have, we'll have another one on November 13th. Okay, we're going to get together and we're going to have prayer. Does your heart just go, ah, oh, this is so uncomfortable, so hard. We're just going to sit together and be quiet and then wait for somebody to talk and I don't know what's going on right now. Is that, how you, is that how you feel about those regular times of prayer? It's uncomfortable, isn't it, a lot of times? We need to work at making this part of our culture. We need to work at making this part of our church culture, this regular time of prayer, and I think that starts on Sunday morning. We have some thoughts, Jeremy and I have talked about that. We have some thoughts about how to emphasize prayer more in our regular gatherings. We, we want that to stand out. A devotion to gathering regularly with God's people. Are you devoted? Are you committed to that? Or are there many other priorities that take the place of being devoted to a regular gathering with God's people? I challenge you in that. There's, there's one other way that they fellowship together. There's one other way they were committed to each other in a real, tangible way. And in fact, the word fellowship here, koinonia, Uh, It it talks about participation. This is actually the way they talked about their giving. It is the participation. And you see that fleshed out here in Acts 2.42. Do you see that in verse 45? They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They fellowshiped around the table, first the Lord's table and then the kitchen table. They, they fellowship together, regular set times of gathering for worship, for prayer, for hearing God's word. They did that together. And they were devoted to sacrificial, generous giving, a participation together for the sake of their own. They participated in material care of the flock, financial, material, fellowship. Who were they responsible for? This needs definition. Who were they responsible for? They were giving in this way for the, for the good and the needs 
of those who had received the word and were baptized and were continuing in that word. The New Testament actually has much to say. We, we don't just give away money to people, but we meet the needs of God's people through the giving, through the participation. They sold their possessions and belongings and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, there are many who will take this passage and say, well, see, the early church was a socialist government. Have you ever heard that? Socialism. No, this is not socialism because it was voluntary and it was intentionally crafted around the needs of particular people. It's not socialism. It was voluntary. They did this freely. They did this generously. They sold their possessions. They sold their properties. They sold what they had and they took the money and they gave it to any, those who had need. They were generous, sacrificially generous. This is what Philippians 2 is talking about when it says, don't look only on your own interests, but also on the interests of others. Listen, I know within ballpark, I know how much money I have in my checking account this morning. And I know how much money I have in my savings account. It doesn't take much to keep track of those numbers. I know what I have in my bank account, and so do you. But do I know what the needs are of the body? Do I know what others need? Am I so interested in my own self and my own interests Am I plugged in? Am I clued into the needs of others here in our body? Do you even know people enough to know that? What do they need? Let me talk about the other side of that. There are a lot of times people will come to me and want to give me money for someone, and, and they don't need it. People will say, well, well, I know so-and-so needs a lot of this, so I'm just going to give money so you can give to them. Do you know so-and-so? They don't actually need that money. This is not just careless, haphazard giving. It's generous, sacrificial giving with intent. Knowing what others need. And giving sacrificially to meet the needs of others. How can they be so generous? This is connected to Luke 2, or Luke 12 rather, which I've mentioned many times. Luke 12 their generosity comes from their view of the kingdom. Can you imagine the context here? Let's consider again the context. Peter has just preached a sermon that's telling them the kingdom has come. The kingdom has come. The kingdom that you've been waiting for. What, what do you think they think about their possessions and all their belongings? What are they thinking? Well, those don't mean anything anymore. Those don't matter as much as they used to. The kingdom has come and is coming. Their view of the kingdom. I asked that question a couple of weeks ago. What is the importance of your view of the kingdom? The importance, one of the things is that your view of the kingdom will fuel your generosity. What are you living for? Are you living for this kingdom, the kingdom of earth, where treasure is corrupted, where moth corrupts and rust corrupts? Or are you living for a kingdom where moth and rust do not corrupt? See, this is what fuels our generosity. And this is what was impacting their generosity, their ability to sell what they had and give to any as they had need. And now, listen, if you think, wow, I wish we could just get back. That early church, look at how they they gave sacrificially. Well, just stay tuned. It's not going to take long. Here in just a couple of chapters, this, this distribution this participation together where they distributed as any had need, it it rears its ugly head in man's sin. Man's sin takes this distribution that should be a blessing to others and it uses it to glorify self. As Ananias and Sapphira see what's going on, they lie about how they've sold and what money they have and they want to get glory for themselves through their giving this is a caution to us as we give and as we are sacrificially giving to others we don't do it so that we can be noticed 
or mentioned. But, but this generous giving is a reflection of your belief, your view of the kingdom, and your view of the Father's heart for you. That's what Luke 12 says, remember? Fear not. Don't be anxious, little flock. Don't be anxious. How many of you are anxious about your financial holdings and about your assets and all those things? Don't be anxious, he says, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give to you the kingdom, the kingdom, everything. What you're trying to hold on to, what's making you anxious, that's not where your reward, that's not where your treasure is. It's in the kingdom that your Father has purpose to give to you. It's His good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Your view of the kingdom fuels your generosity and calms your anxious heart, your worried heart. What is the result then of these two devotions? Do you see the results there? Here in Acts chapter 2, there are three results. I'm not going to explain all the different results. Let's just look at them really briefly. The three, the three results. Well, there was fear created. Awe, reverence. You see that in verse 43. And awe, fear came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. The apostles doing signs and wonders, that definitely produced awe, but that was not the only thing. Do you see it there? It was the devotion, the continuing in the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of the bread and the prayers. This created awe in the people who saw it. They were in awe. Their jaw dropped at what they were seeing. It was supernatural. It was amazing. How are these people fellowshipping together? This is incredible. The church, the local church, is what we have today. Let me remind you again of the jaw-dropping potential of the local church. When, when people come into a church that is devoted to doctrine and to each other, the impact that this has on those who see it is awe. It's incredible. It's amazing. When you go into a church, what is it, what is it that most people are looking for when they go into a church? What are they looking for? Again, they're looking for their experience, right? Is the music awesome? Are, are the programs well run? Do they have kids programs where I can stick my kids for an hour and a half while I go and have heartfelt worship? What do they look for? A dynamic speaker, maybe. Maybe they look for people who are their same age and stage. Do they have enough young people there? Do I have enough people my age? These, these things don't produce awe. In fact, the world understands all of those things very well. That doesn't produce awe. What, what produces awe? When somebody comes in and goes, why are all these people? And they're devoted to God's word. They're devoted to the Bible, the scriptures. The scriptures are the focus. And they're devoted to one another. These people who have nothing in common except for Jesus, they're devoted to each other. They sacrificially give to one another. They enjoy being around each other. They're unified around the truth. Devoted to one another in these ways. You see also that it produced favor. Verse 47, they were praising God and having favor with all people. Again, again, it, it's not going to take long before that favor runs out. Very quickly here in the book of Acts, they will not have favor with all people. In fact, they will be ostracized. They will be persecuted. Their persecution will lead to their separation and their scattering throughout the known world. But their fellowship together had the result of producing favor in the sight of others. That's not something we can control, is it? Can we can control as a church whether the outside world thinks well of us or not? Can we even control what, what Center Place Regional Event Center thinks of us? We can't control that. We can do all we can to be favorable and obtain grace in the, their eyes, but we can't control that. 
In fact, the world will hate us, it says, Scripture says, if we align ourselves with the name of Jesus. Awe and favor were produced. And then look at verse number, the end of verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The Lord adds to their number those who are being saved. The Lord is doing a work here. He is adding to their number. How often, how often do we see people try to manufacture results, manufacture desirable results, when in fact, it is up to the Lord to add to the number those who are being saved. It's the Lord's work. You might know of the first and second great awakening. First great awakening was a movement, a revival that took place in the 18th century here in our country. The first great awakening started in Massachusetts, spread to Connecticut, throughout the New England, the Northeast. And it was a movement of God through ordinary pastors and churches. Hear what I'm saying with that. Men, faithful men and faithful churches had been preaching and loving each other for generations. And one day, in the 18th century, God decided to move through those ordinary pastors and those ordinary churches and those ordinary means. And the result was a massive revival and harvest of souls. Massive. The first great awakening. In the 19th century, early part of the 19th century, there was something called the Second Great Awakening. The Second Great Awakening was another mass movement that was called revival. But this, the character of this movement was far different than the, the First Great Awakening. In the Second Great Awakening, men manufactured results. This, Charles Finney was the big, the big name in the Second Great Awakening. He figured out how to manipulate people's emotions. He figured out how to manipulate people's experience. And so they, they had a massive movement of a man-made, manufactured revival. This is where altar calls came from, where people would then have altar calls and get a number of decisions, always keeping track of how many people were saved and how many people were baptized. And yet, the fruit of that revival, because it was man-made, led to division, led to disharmony, led to all types of poor theology which we are experiencing even today in American Christianity. You you want to know where all the division and all that comes from in denominationalism and all that? It comes from the second great awakening and the fruits of it. See, this idea that we can unify in some kind of false way and manufacture results, that's what leads to the disharmony. Not the doctrine. Not, Not... devotion to one another, not these ordinary means that God has given. I I pray, as you pray, I am sure, for God to work through, in and through this church to reach the lost of Spokane Valley. I'm sure you pray that. I'm sure you pray for those results. But the results aren't up to us. What can we be devoted to? What should we be devoted to? There's, a, there's only a small list of things that we can control. What's that? Be devoted to God's word. Be devoted to one another. In giving sacrificially for the sake of each other. And sharing the table together in unity around the gospel, around Jesus. Not gospel plus. And 
being devoted to that regular gathering together. That is ordinary, isn't it? That doesn't sound like it's going to revive the world, does it? But that's exactly, that's exactly what God wants from us. The results then are up to him. So what do you think the people say when they come into our church? Is this what we pray for our church? That church is devoted to the scriptures and they're devoted to one another. That's what I hope is said about Trinity Church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the simplicity of this picture. And as we consider this picture, I pray that you would keep our hearts from this ultimately unhelpful sentiment that we need to recreate every moment of this picture, but that we would take away these devotions that are transferable, that we should have today, being devoted to your word, to doctrine, to the teaching, and being devoted to one another. Show us in our own hearts where we are isolated, where we value our privacy over fellowship, true fellowship, where we are interested in our own interests, taken with our own interests, and yet know so little about those that sit around us on a Sunday morning. Convict us where we form false fellowship, really, around gospel plus realities. And where we neglect true gospel fellowship of our own comfort zones or our own preferences. I pray that this church would be known for these two devotions. And I pray that our fellowship would be real, true, and rich, and life-giving, awe-giving. And that you would do a work, Lord, by your grace, to bring many to the saving knowledge of you. Through your church, through your people, we pray in your name. Amen.